right. Oh, man, this is like a spiritual caffeine for us this morning, right? This is good. Good to sing how good Jesus is to us, right? Go ahead and grab a seat, Overlake. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And uh, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout, and you will see we are continuing our way through the book of Colossians. Uh, this is actually our, our second to last week. In Next week, we'll wrap it up with sort of the end of chapter four. And uh, what, what has been very consistent all the way through this book is that the Apostle Paul, it, it's his manifesto of the supremacy of Jesus. That's what the book is all about. It's, it's that Jesus is overall, that that is at the heart of this good news. That's the heart of how we can live this full and abundant and free life. And, and so what Paul wants to do then is not just theologically sort of identify that Jesus is overall, but then let that reality somehow invade our lives. And so it, it makes a difference in how we treat one another. It makes a difference in how we view like all kinds of things, our workplace, our relationships, just kind of everything with Jesus at the very center. So what we want to do is we want to we start in Colossians 3, verse 23. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them up, 323. And you'll just see that this is one more place where the Apostle Paul is wanting to show what it looks like with Jesus at the very center. So let's just jump in. Uh, verse 23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. So it's interesting what Paul seems to be doing is asking a question here. And the question he's asking us is, again, with Jesus at the center, who are you working for? Who are you working for? And what Paul's arguing here is you're not working for a paycheck and you're not working for personal sense of significance or purpose in life or you're not working even to provide for your family. Although those things are all byproducts of your work, but it's important to recognize that who you're working for is Jesus. He's the one that we are working for. He's the one that we work willingly for. He's the one that we work hard. You know, we want to work hard. We want to work diligently. We want to give our excellence. We want to bring our expertise because who we're working for is not our boss. Who we're working for is not even our family members if we're working in the home or our neighbors if we're working in our neighborhood or if we're volunteering. It's not the person who's in charge of the volunteers. We are working for Jesus. Amen? And so that's where Paul wants us to go. And, and it, what, what he's challenging us to do is to work harder to set a higher example. You might want to write that down. We want to work more diligently to set a higher example. We, we want to bring more to the table. We want to, we want to set a really high bar in terms of how we approach our work life because we want people to understand that Jesus is a part of this equation and we are ultimately working for him. Now, again, Paul doesn't just talk to those who are working. He wants to talk to those who are in charge of the workers. So he goes on in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what he's challenging here is to the employers, right? He's challenging here to the boss. He's saying, be a great employer, 
that you would inspire those who work for you and challenge them and encourage them. Be right and fair with your team. Treat them honorably. Pay them respectably. Show them Christ in how you work with them because, he says, you have a master in heaven. In other words, the boss needs to understand that the boss is going to be held accountable to Jesus as well. Right? And so there's this recognition that, oh, yeah, there's, there's a way in which he encourages employees, and then now he's challenging employers. And to me, this all kind of falls under a conversation about leadership. It all kind of falls under this larger picture about how we lead in this world and how we utilize our influence in this world. Last week, we just had an election all across America. And all across America, we, we elected officials into positions of influence, and, and there, there's some authority there. Now, I just want you to understand every single person that has been elected into office is a flawed human being. They, they all have places where they stumble, where they struggle. They, regardless of what party they're uh, aligned with, everyone has mixed motives, some good, some bad. Everyone has some strengths and some weaknesses. That's just the reality of how we're dealing with this thing called humanity in, in, in our life, right? This is a fallen world we live in. So here's, though, what I would have you understand. When I pray for our leaders... And I do pray for our leaders, as the Bible urges us to. I would encourage you to pray for all of the leaders uh, that are elected in America. But here's, here's what I pray for. I pray that no matter who they are or where they're aligned, I pray that there is a little humility in how they steward their leadership. I pray that they would understand that there will be a day when they are standing before the God of the universe... And he's going to hold them accountable for how they stewarded their leadership and how they utilized their influence. And did they care about the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the weakest among those that they were called to represent? Are you following me? And, and there's this challenge, right? It, because, listen, if we were convinced that every leader in elected office knew that they were going to be held accountable before God, wouldn't that cause us to sleep a little better at night? Right? Like, that would, be, that would be a little bit encouraging. Like, okay, I might not agree with them or whatever, but, but I know that they know that they're going to stand before God, so I feel a little better. And so, so that's how I pray. That's how I encourage you to pray. And, um, and speaking of prayer, raise your hand if you have ever gone to a seminar on breathing. Has anyone ever gone to a seminar on breathing? A couple of you guys, yeah? Anybody? Yeah, there were a few in the first service. How many of you have ever gone to like a, a conference on breathing. Anybody do a three-day conference on breathing? Anybody? How many of you have ever taken a, a, a college class, like a semester on breathing? Anybody? No, probably not. Like, like there's sort of, a, there's sort of like it seems to be a level of exhaustion with how we can understand this concept. And, and what's funny about breathing is you can focus on it. In fact, let's focus on it right now. I want everyone to inhale deeply. Ready? Now exhale. Thank you for brushing your teeth today. <laughs> Doesn't it feel good? It feels good to breathe. It feels good to oxygenate your body. It feels healthy. You feel a little more alive when you breathe. But, but the truth is you could spend your day focusing on breathing or you could spend your day just going about your day. You, you go to the gym, you go to work you're, you're work, you're with your family or your friends, and maybe you come to church, you sing. You're, you're not thinking about breathing at all, but what are you doing the entire time? Breathing, 
right? You, in fact, there's very little you can do for very long without breathing. Uh, breathing is essential for us as humans. And what Paul's arguing here, Paul's arguing that praying is as essential as breathing. That for the follower of Jesus Christ, our prayer life is actually like oxygen for our lungs. This is how we do it. This is what we rely on in order to live as followers of Jesus. He says in verse 2, chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Devote yourselves. And by the way, this is by no means the only time the scripture encourages us or challenges us to devote ourselves. In Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, pray without ceasing. What all of this means is that God wants to talk with you. That God wants to hear from you. That God, the God of the universe, wants to be in communion, in dialogue with you. And this is to be as vital to us as breathing. It should be continual, not casual. We should be alert. That literally means keeping awake, spiritually alive in, in the full sense of the word. Not carelessly, not mechanically, not ritualistically or dull or duty. or, or, or the, In fact, the image that I have with this, going with this oxygen metaphor is I want you to imagine a diver that dives deeply, free, free diver. And he dives deeply, or she dives deeply, and she goes down, she's exploring the depths, and then they come up for air. And I want you to just picture that scene when they just break the surface of the water, and they inhale deeply. That is not a begrudging breath of oxygen. That is a sweet breath. That is an animating breath. That is, a, that is a breath that allows for life to continue. Are you with me? And, and that's how we are to approach this concept of prayer, devoting ourselves to prayer. Prayer is what keeps us connected to Jesus, to our identity in him. It keeps us humble. It keeps us dependent. It keeps us thankful. In fact, I, I want you to circle that phrase in, in the verse, a thankful heart right there. Friends, this is the fourth time a thankful heart or being thankful has come up in a very short letter that Paul has written. And it brings us to the next question that Paul wants us to ponder. What are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? You see, thankfulness is a big deal to God. It comes up again and again and again in Scripture. God wants us to be a people who are thanksgiving often. He wants us to be a very grateful people of his. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how that's actually a more empowered way to live. That when we live thankful, we actually live more confident, we live more hopeful, more expectant. But what I want to tell you today is I, I want to tell you, you can't fake your way there. You can't just pretend that you're thankful when you're not feeling thankful. I know. Here's what I, here's what I want you to understand, though. Gratitude impacts your attitude. That's what I want you to know. So you can't fake your way there, but gratitude actually changes your attitude. And, and so I just, I, I want to tell you this absolute vulnerable, honest truth today. Uh, I, I practice this. And so I, I practice it, then I feel like, okay, I practice it at where I, let me share it with you, with Overlay. Here's, here's the thing. I woke up this morning, early morning, had my cup of coffee, I'm down by the fire, I did not feel like coming to church today. I was like, oh, I don't want to go to church. And I'm the pastor. And I'm like, oh, I, I, oh, I just want to go back to bed kind of. 
And so I started, I started practicing this. So, I, so basically what I started to do is like, okay, well, Jesus, let me just thank you for this thing that happened yesterday. And let me just thank you for, oh, this other thing that happened yesterday. And th thank you for meeting me here yesterday. And I just started going through my Saturday and just started identifying some things that I was thankful for. And as I identified some things that I was thankful for to Jesus on Saturday, he brought to mind some things, other things that I wasn't focused on. So then I started thinking of more and more things that I was thankful for. And it took me about five minutes or so, and then I was actually thankful. Amen. Does that make sense? Amen. In other words, I didn't fake Thanksgiving. I just practiced my way there. I, I just started being thankful and identifying things that I was thankful for, and suddenly my heart was truly thankful. Are you following me? And this is how it happens. Your gratitude impacts your attitude, and it changes your framework, and I was and am very excited to be here with you today. So just so you know. Um, okay, so uh, not only is Paul challenging us to, to celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, maybe we should celebrate Thanksgiving not just one day a year, but every day during the year without the attendant gluttony. Um, but uh, I, I would just say that Paul is actually going to drill down even further. So he says, devote yourselves to prayer. And then he starts parsing it out. He says, pray for us too. Pray for us. Pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for your pastors or your church staff or your elders. Pray, Paul says, for me. And the question comes up, why would you pray for your leaders? Why is that uh, a reality? Well, because leaders are just like regular people, only more so. You know, um, when I used to be in student ministries, I was in youth ministry for 12 years. I used to get this question all the time from students. And then in the last 14 years of being at Overlake, I've actually got this question a handful of times too. People come up to me, and especially students, they come up to me and they're like, hey, pastor, like, how hard is it to be a pastor? Like, really? Like, like, uh, tell me, you know, what do you, what do you do all week long, you know? And whenever I get that question, I would always say, I pray all day, every day, mostly for you. And if you'd stop sinning, I'd get a whole lot more work done, you know? <laughs> no. I, I, I want you to know over like that I do pray for you. I, I, and I love to pray for you, and, and honestly, my heart is so in love for you, with you, and I love being on this journey with you. So there is prayer from my heart over you. There's prayer from all of the pastors and the elders for you as a, as a church family. But, but with Paul, I would say humbly that I would encourage you to pray for me. The question that this passage generates is, who do you pray for? Who do you pray for? Who makes it on your prayer list? And humbly, I would suggest, you know, if I'm not on your list, could, could I please invite you to add me? If you don't pray for the pastors of Overlay, could I please invite you to add them? If you don't pray for the elders of Overlay, could I please invite you to add them to your list? Because we need your prayer. I did a little research this week, and so kind of vulnerably, I want to just lift the lid off this thing so that you can see what it's like to what you deal with as a pastor of a church in America today. And, and so I found some statistics. The Alban Institute out of Duke University estimates that 17% of pastors are experiencing burnout today. Less than 33% of pastors are happy in their work. 40% of pastors describe themselves as heading for burnout. 
1,500 pastors exit the ministry every month due to moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. 50% of pastors are so discouraged they would leave the ministry if they could, but they have no other way of making a living. 50% of those who go into full-time ministry drop out within five years. And 70% of pastors do not have a close friend, confidant, or mentor. And the statistics are even more dire for the spouses of pastors. So I want you to see that, that it's, a, it's a very real thing to invite you to pray for your pastors and your elders and, and to pray for me. Because it's, it, it's a, it, there's a challenge there. And you say, well, how it, how, why is it so hard? How, how come it's so difficult? He, he, why it's so hard in so many congregations around America is that there is a non-biblical view of what it means to be the church family. There's a non-biblical view to mean what it means to be a member in the family of God. And, and so you get, you get uh, you know, people in churches all around America, and they say, well, I'm not going to give, and I'm not going to serve, and I'm not going to invite, and I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to lean back and cross my arms, and I'm just going to take bets on how long this guy lasts in the pulpit. You know, and then they watch their pastor run around like crazy trying to invigorate the church family, trying to stir up the body, trying to get people to realize, no, we're all in this together, that every one of us is essential in the family. And, and, and it's like uh, trying to play athletics with a body that is uh, suffered a stroke and is 80% paralyzed because 80% of the body of Christ is just sitting there doing nothing. And it can be very discouraging. And last week, I talked very clearly about the lie that we contend with all the time. The lie is, my contribution doesn't matter, when in fact, it's essential. The lie is, uh, I, I'm not needed here, when in fact, you're foundational. Do you see that we are all in this together, and so the challenge is that we would be the family of God together, and, and so that's my encouragement, that's Paul's encouragement, pray for us, pray for me, and then back to Colossians, Paul tells him what to pray for, verse 3, he says that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ, that's why I'm here in chains, I'd love to have you circle the word his mysterious plan. It's a, it's a mystery, Paul talks about it in other places, it, you know, it's, it's this thing that God has revealed, and we'll get to it in a moment. Um, he says, pray for me that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. So Paul understood that he was there to proclaim this message. He had a, he had a spiritual obligation to communicate this message, this mysterious plan of God. And so what is this mysterious plan? What is this message? And we've talked about it many times, and Overlake, we're going to talk about it many more times. But it's just this. It's the message of God's love poured out not only to the Jewish community, but to the Gentiles as well. Not only to one group of people, but to the entire world as well. And, and so there's this message that Paul brings, and the message is called the gospel or the good news. And if you're filling in the blanks, you need to know that the good news, it actually starts with some bad news. The good news starts with some bad news. And the bad news that the good news starts with is just our human condition. The bad news is that we each would like to be our own little God. That's, that's the truth. This is the human condition. We would each like to be our own little God in charge of our own little universe. 
And so we work really hard and we strive really hard and we control really hard. And we try to make sure that we can manipulate the circumstances around us and the people around us so that everything orbits around us as the little God of our little universe. Are you following me? And this goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when the enemy whispered the lie, you will not surely die if you eat that forbidden fruit. No, you'll become, what is it? Like God. And so that's been the temptation from the very beginning, and that's what we go after. We, we strive to be treated like God. We, we strive to be in control like God. We, that's just what we go after. And here's the, here's the horrible thing. The horrible thing about it is, A, if you were to succeed, you would be totally miserable because you would have everything just absolutely orbiting around you and you would find that that actually doesn't bring you any deep satisfaction at all. Fortunately, you actually will never accomplish that. So you'll fail at manipulating everybody and everything around you and circumstances aren't in your control, people aren't in your control. So you will always be frustrated that you can't organize your universe the way that you wish you could. Either way, it's the way that seems right to you but it ends horribly for you. It's like a bug zapper. Do you know what a bug zapper is? Right? In the south, I know this is more, they're more, you know. But if you're a bug and, and you're just kind of cruising around some Texas porch and, and you see, you're like, it's beautiful. It's, it's such a beautiful blue. I just, I want to be near. Oh, it's warm. Oh, I just want to be near it. And, it, you know, toast. It's over. And, and that's how we are. And the, the Bible's really clear. The Bible actually says uh, this is what's going to happen. He says there's a way that seems right to men, but it ends in death. And so the, the temptation to disobey God in the very beginning opened Pandora's box. And it opened up the, the way. That disobedience opened up the way for death and destruction. It opened up the way for isolation. It opened up the way for our relationships to be broken, our, our relationship with God to be broken. And all those things we have inherited. We, we are the spiritual benefactors of that original disobedience. And we keep falling into the same trap trying to be gods of our own little universe. Well, that brings us to the next challenge here, the challenge the, the, as this message of the good news. We have to acknowledge that I can't fix me. And the reason why I know this is true is because if we could fix ourselves, we already would have fixed ourselves, right? That we are actually in something that we are in because we cannot get out of the thing that we're in, that we... We can't fix ourselves, and we've tried, and we can, and we try, and we can't. It, it's, it's where we are right now. But when we come to the end of ourselves, something beautiful happens. When we come to the end of ourselves, that actually allows us to turn toward God. And this is the next villain. We can trust that God can fix me. Trust that God can fix me. Trust that God has a plan for me. This is that mysterious plan that Paul's talking about here. Trust that his plan is that we would turn from our own way, from, from this desire to be our own little God, and we would actually turn to the one true God, and that we could, we could see that now he has all the power, he has all that we need in order for us to right-size ourselves in the real universe by worshiping a real God. Now, here's what I want you to know. The Bible actually says this, that idea of turning from our way to God's way is, is a word called repent. 
And I know that preachers have kind of manipulated that word and used that word. It simply means to turn. And so Lamentations 3.40 says, instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn again in repentance to the Lord. That idea of turning, that's repentance. And so here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you have to repent or you have to clean yourself up in order to come to God. It just means this, that coming to God is repentance. Right? They, 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 when you actually trust him and we actually turn to him, that is repentance. You're saying, God, I need you. And then that brings us to the last fill-in here. And then you invite Jesus to fix you. Amen. So he is the source of our hope. He is the source of our salvation. He is the source of our cleansing. Our, uh, he's the source of our, our uh, full life Amen. that he wants us to live with him. And I absolutely love the scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It's one of my very favorite in the entire Bible. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Could you just circle the word now? Now there's no condemnation. Now. Not later, now. The, the, now there's no condemnation. Not when you get everything cleaned up or sorted. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. So I'm gonna, I want to unpack a story for you here. And it, it'll seem like a tangent, but I, I, I pray that it'll come back around. You, oh, I get, I get where he's going on this. There is a thing in the world today. It's artificial intelligence, and it happens to be a pretty big topic in my home. And artificial intelligence, and, and I know that here we are in Microsoft country, and this is sort of, it's like tech northwest, and, and so some of you, you're really familiar with artificial intelligence, and some of you, like me, not so familiar. Some of you are very excited about artificial intelligence, you just, you can't wait about all the possibilities, and others of you are very fearful of artificial intelligence, because you know, like me, it's the end of the world. And... Uh, <laughs> So it's just a topic in our home, and what's interesting is I was listening to a, a message on technology this week, and I, I heard th this guy talking about how humans have now programmed artificial intelligence in such a way that uh, AI can now, uh, just with its own you know, capacity, it, it can beat any chess master in the world. That there, there, there's a, this, this capacity now for artificial intelligence to beat chess master, a human chess master. And for some of you, you think that's not that big of a deal. You think, oh, how big of a deal could that be? So I, I just was listening to how big of a deal it actually is because he, the truth is after one move on a chessboard, there are 400 different position options available, which is not that hard to predict, 400 options. But after two moves a piece on a chessboard, there are now 72,000 different options. After three moves on a chessboard, there are now 9 million different options. And after four moves on a chessboard, there are 288 billion different possible options of a way to play the game of chess. I, was find, I, I found out that the number of game trees of chess, in other words, the, the potential number of ways to play the game of chess actually outnumbers the amount of galaxies there are in the universe. There are hundreds of billions of options for how to play the game of chess. So it's a pretty big deal that a human programmed artificial intelligence to be able to run all of the algorithms 
to understand all of the possible ways that a human might play the game of chess, chess rather, always manipulate the, the human's options, always manipulating the game, shrinking the options so that the final option that a human has playing against AI is defeat. The final option that a human has, right? AI is so skilled now, manipulating the board so completely that the final option a human has is checkmate. Hence, my fear of AI. I feel like that's the dumbest thing for a person to program artificial into Why not program the other thing? Why not program that the human wins at the end? That would be wonderful. Like, like let's program, that would make me happy about AI. Okay, fine. My fear, gone. Okay, so here's what I want you to understand. The AI's goal is to defeat the human. Our hope was never in AI. Our hope is in II, infinite intelligence. Our, our hope is in the one who has created us and called us to be in relationship with him. By the way, can I just be honest? It takes no great intelligence to cause us to defeat ourselves. We, we do a pretty good job of that on our own, don't we? Like, like some of you, you're like, oh, yeah, no, I don't need any intelligence to wreck my own life, right? Uh, some of you, you're actually so good at it. You're like, you know what, Pastor? There is no area of my life that is untouched by my stupidity. I, I have... I, I have really done a number on my life. I, you know, I have tanked my relationships, and I have wrecked my finances, and my professional life is a mess, and, and I don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the future, and, and I've disappointed people that I love, like, you're like, I have, I have literally outsmarted God with how bad I have done this thing called life. I want you to understand this, that it does not matter how bad your choices have been. It doesn't matter the road that you've walked, how you have been duped. It doesn't matter how, how you have made choices that have been for your own worst future or your friend's worst future or your family's worst future. It doesn't matter who you've disappointed, that Jesus, infinite intelligence, is always, he's reading all the algorithms. He understands every pathway there is. 200 billion, hundreds of billions of opportunities that you've had to ruin your life. And Jesus knows them all. And he meets you there. And with Jesus, there is one more move. There is one more move with Jesus. It's the move of grace. There is always one more move. And you think, no, no, there's no way Jesus could know where I am. There's no way he could see how far I've gone. I'm telling you, friends, that Jesus knows where you are. He meets you there. And with him, there is one more move. And here's how I know. I know because God has allowed us to understand how it is that he has played the game. You see, uh, what it says in the scripture, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word that's used in John chapter 1 is the word logos. Now, in the Greek, logos means this. It means the divine orchestration of the universe. The divine principles creating all things, that's the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word wrapped himself 
in human skin, the creator of all things stepped into created time. The one who was wrapped in indescribable glory and light allowed himself, condescended to be born to peasants, sheltering in a stable. When God stepped into history, nobody could have foreseen that. It blows our minds. We're like, I did not see that move coming. And then Jesus started his ministry, and he walked around God in the flesh, and people were set free. The demons fled. The, 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 those who were lame were walking. He went to a, a wedding, and, and suddenly water turns into wine, and, and he advocates for the downtrodden, and he speaks for the disenfranchised, and he says to this adulteress caught in the act, I don't condemn you, and he touches the leper and brings healing, and, and all of this time we say, I didn't see that coming. I did not, I did not see that move coming. And then the disciples, after, after traveling with him for three years, they see him betrayed, and they see him mocked, and they see him spat upon. They, they see the whip that comes down to his back again and again and again. They see the crown of thorns thrust on his head, his beard ripped from his face. They see him nailed to a rough Roman tree. They see him raised up so that all who pass by could scorn. They see him breathe his last, and they say, it's over. We are defeated. It's checkmate. But there's one more move with Jesus you see, he begins to breathe again on the third day, and the stone rolls away from the tomb, and Jesus is alive in glory, and his disciples rally to him, and there's this whole new day coming because Jesus has paid the penalty for sin forever and ever, and Jesus invites us to be with him forever and ever, and there's always one more move with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And that's the mysterious plan of God that Paul is in chains for, that, that he's praying that you would pray, that, his, that the people would pray that he, he declares this message, and, and I pray that you would pray for me, that, that I would proclaim this message, and I pray for you that you would proclaim this message, that the, mess, or the, the grace of Jesus... And the love of Jesus is for Jew and Gentile. It is, it is for the civilized and the uncivilized, the educated and the uneducated. It is for those who are here in this church and those who are watching online and those who live in this region and for those who live in America and for those who live in every country on this, in this globe. It, God's love is for everyone revealed in Christ Jesus and his grace is available for you. No matter how you think you have disqualified yourself, Jesus says, there's one more move in me. That's the grace of Jesus. That's the love of Jesus. And that's the, the power of this message, that Jesus loves you. And that Jesus came to this earth for you. That, that his purpose is that he wants a relationship of love that starts right now and lasts for all of eternity. So I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'd love to have you join me in prayer. And we want to start where Paul always challenges. We want to start with gratitude. So Jesus, we just start by saying thanks. Thank you that there is nothing we can do 
to separate ourselves from your love. There's, there's nothing that, that we have done, nothing we could do. There's no dumb move that we could make that would ever separate us from the power, the relentlessness of your love and grace pursuing us. Jesus, we are so thankful for that. And right now, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I just want to ask if there are anyone, if there's anyone here who you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never received his love in your life, you've never understood that he is so for you, if you want to receive his love and his grace today, just slip your hand up in the air right now. Just slip your hand up. I want to pray for you. If you want to say yes to Jesus, just slip that hand up right now. Yeah, God bless you. God bless you. Yeah, I see that in the back. Thank you. Oh, Jesus. Lord Jesus, these men and women who have raised their hands, my prayer is they'd experience your Holy Spirit right now. The power of your love wrapping them up in your grace. They could hear your whisper, the, the, the reality of your presence in their life saying, I know you and I love you. And you are cleansed and you are forgiven. And there is a whole new game to play because you've said yes to this grace. Jesus, we are so thankful that in you all things are made new. We're so thankful that in you we do have our life and our breath and our being. And, and Jesus, as, as this book has called our attention, we want to live with you at the very center of our lives. Would you please show us how to live like that? We love you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.